So if you're not expecting that you're going to get stung, then it's a lot more painful and shocking. And it stung the back of my hand. And it just felt a little bit like I'd received an electric shock. You just had this really sharp, intense pain. Only it continues and it gets worse and worse. And within about 15 minutes, you find that the lymph nodes under your arm start to swell, throb, and feel really, really painful. Like someone has put a vice underneath your armpit and has, has squeezed the lymph nodes. It was incredibly painful and, you know, like just crying from pain. I knew straight away, as soon as it stung me, I looked at the leaf and I saw the hooks on it and I knew straight away that it was a shiny leaf stinging tree. That's right. The shiny leaf stinging tree. Dendrocnide photonophila. That's what caused ecologist Dr Marina Hurley that extremely intense pain. Not a snake, not a spider, a plant. Dendrocnide is a genus of over 30 species of plants in the nettle family. And some of the worst stingers in the world are found growing in the rainforests of northern New South Wales and Queensland. So if you see leaves that are large, furry, serrated edges and also bright green often, then that's a good indication that it's a stinging tree. But even with a keen eye for stinging trees, during Marina's fieldwork involving this dangerous group of plants, she was severely stung by dendrocnide moroides, the most painful in the world. It also goes by the name Gimpy Gimpy, Moonlighter, and the suicide plant. You have to work with welding gloves when you're handling stinging trees because welding gloves are thick enough to stop the hairs from penetrating. So I dropped my welding glove on the floor of the forest and I bent down to pick it up. And as I picked it up, I drove my finger through a dead leaf. And of course, I didn't realise it was a stinging tree leaf because it wasn't green. It was dead and dried up and brown. Yet, of course, it still had lots and lots of stinging hairs. And my finger went all the way through it. And I knew this was going to be a really, really bad sting. Some people even describe the pain as being like a hot acid burn. And some women even say it's more painful than childbirth. And poor Marina was all by herself in the forest with no help. I then walked out to the car and I drove one-handed to the Atherton Hospital. And because I was handling the pain so well, they didn't realise at triage how bad it was. You know, it's just like constant pain. It just doesn't go away. An older nurse w walked past and she stood next to me and, and she looked at me and she said to the woman behind the desk, what's wrong here? And she said, oh, stinging tree. And she turned around and looked at me again and she said, you are completely white. And she said, come with me now. And she just took me into one of the cubicles and she didn't even see a doctor or anything. She just uh, pulled down my pants and injected me with a pethidine injection. And she was worried I was, I was going to faint. 
And I had to stay in hospital for five hours before the pain abated and I was able to go home. Isn't that crazy? And it's not just welding gloves you need if you're working on or near stinging trees. Turns out you need a particle face mask too. Everyone who spent more than, say, an hour without a particle mask will then start to get a runny nose. And then after a certain amount of time, you start to sneeze and you just keep sneezing and you don't stop sneezing. One of the first scientists to do extensive research into dendrocnidae moroides, I think, in the 1960s, he found that if you stay in the vicinity of stinging trees for extended period of times without protection, your nose then starts to bleed. I'm thinking what's happening is that some of the hair particles are floating in the air and they're getting breathed in. Even if you're not specifically researching stinging trees like Marina used to, botanists such as Robert Kuhlman are doing fieldwork in the rainforests and also getting stung. In particular, when you spend decades uh, chasing plants through those places where stinging trees live, you invariably and inevitably will uh, will interact with them. And and so I've interacted uh, relatively violently with all three species: so the uh, the gimpy stinger, Den- Dendrocnide moroides, uh, the giant stinger, Dendrocnide excelsa and the shining leaf stinger, which is Dendrocnide photinophila. And I use the word violent because that's what it is. It's a violent pain. It's very, very intense, a a searing heat with a prickling sensation that is incredibly intense, you know, has an obvious impact on you. You recoil. It's uh, up there on a scale of zero to 10 in terms of the immediate intensity. It's, It's very, very close to 10. There are records of, uh, of people uh, during the Second World War, some of our servicemen, running into that particular species and, uh, and going into deep shock to a point where they had heart failure and they had to be resuscitated. So I think we've got a pretty good idea of how painful the sting can be. But let's take a look and how exactly the plant administers this attack. Silica hairs uh, inject into the skin and uh, that combination of acids that it, that it gives you is, uh, is very strong. Yeah, those hairs are like tiny hypodermic needles and the toxin they release cause a lot of pain without doing any actual damage to the skin itself. In fact, scientists still don't completely understand how the toxin works. Either way... It's an amazing defence system. This is just another expression of plant defences and that we underestimate plants, of course, the the degree to which they communicate and interact through gaseous exchanges, the degree to which they'll protect themselves and the means by which they protect themselves. All of those sorts of things emerge essentially as as what they look like, but it's also their their life history and their life strategies. Of course, that's, that's then linked up to their economic strategies as well, how they make a living and who they live with, all of those sorts of things are, are, uh, come out in those sort of uh, behaviours, if you like, that their capacity to protect themselves, whether it's thorns or prickles or, or uh, thick bark or stinging hairs or whatever it happens to be. So, so this is just another version of a life history strategy and it's, uh, and it's a brilliant piece of evolutionary work, really. But on top of the distinct serrated edges, something else you might notice about the leaves of stinging trees is surprising 
surprisingly, they often show signs of being eaten. My research showed that the leaves are very high in nitrogen and also very high in calcium and also very high in moisture. So as a nutrient source for mammals, they're very, very attractive. The stinging hairs might have evolved for that reason as well, because these leaves are highly nutritious. Yep, the leaves are often riddled with tiny holes. A sure sign Something small has figured out a way to feast without being stung. The whole concept of plant defence is not as simplistic as as what we would like to believe. If you think about the term arms race, I guess, that's often used when people describe plant defence theory in that you have a trait in a plant that deters an insect from eating it and then an insect will develop a way of overcoming that trait. And so then the plant has to develop other traits to deter that insect. And so what you probably find is that the stinging tree keeps 99% of animals away from it, but that 1% of animals that can eat the leaves or not be affected by the leaves will be able to overcome it. So what are these 1% of animals that are winning this arms race? Until Marina undertook her research... No one really knew what was eating them. The reason why no one uh, found anything, because when I first started looking, I couldn't find anything. And I looked and looked and looked. And I did, you know, quite thorough surveys of all the plants to see what was eating the leaves. Collected lots of insects. But I had uh, another student friend who was doing her PhD on possums. And she asked me to come out and help her spotlight possums. And when I was out spotlighting possums, I went past my stinging trees and there were like dozens and dozens of shiny blue beetles on the leaves. And so the herbivore eating the plant was nocturnal. And so it gets back to this whole human uh, bias of, you know, let's only look at things happening during the day. Let's not look at what's happening at night. So, So not only did I have to study the stinging tree, I had to study it at night as well. Yep. The shiny green-black beetle. That's what was causing the most damage. Their mouth parts are so small and most of the hairs are actually quite large comparatively that they can just eat eat the leaf material without having to eat the hairs or without even having to necessarily walk on the hairs. But surprisingly, it's not just tiny insects who have figured out a way to eat the stinging leaves by navigating the hairs like an obstacle course. Marina has also deduced that a mammal... The red-legged paddy melon is also enjoying the leaves. You would think it's strange that a mammal could eat the leaves of the stinging tree so easily, but it definitely was happening. And I was measuring a tree at four o'clock in the afternoon and I came back eight o'clock the next morning and all the leaves had been stripped and you could see that they'd been chewed on. So what makes the red-legged paddy melon immune to the effects of the toxin? Well, Marina says it could be something like mind over matter. If you look at the research before they had animal controls in their testing, I think back in in the 30s or the 40s, they tested feeding stinging nettle to rabbits. And those rabbits who were used to stinging nettle just ate them all up within like five, you know, five seconds flat. But those rabbits that had never encountered a stinging nettle just wouldn't touch them and and got stung and and just showed that that they were hurt from eating the stinging nettle. So 
that shows, you know, once you get used to something, you can actually not only not get, not feel the pain, but you don't even notice it. The theory of simply getting used to it is quite plausible because introduced species to Australia, such as horses, are severely affected by stinging plants. You've got to keep in mind it's a little bit like uh, cassowary eating certain fruits and things like that that we call toxic, that, uh, that for other species the same chemistry doesn't have the same physiological reaction and respond. they don't respond to it the same way. There's still so much to be understood about why stinging plants affect some creatures more than others or why you can still feel the sting months or even years later. I once was stung on the end of the finger and I couldn't put my seatbelt on properly for like six months because every time I used that part of my finger to clip in the seatbelt, I'd get a, a jolt of pain. I'm thinking what ha what's happening there is that a shard of the hair containing the toxin goes into the skin and the skin closes over the hair and that you have to wait for the layers of skin to actually slough off for the hair to be removed. So the toxin really needs to be investigated. And leaves that are in the herbarium, uh, there are some specimens which are nearly 150 years old now, which can still sting you. Wow. So naturally, I think we need to go and see a dried specimen for ourselves. To collect them, we, we just cut off a leaf and then cut it on the ground with a knife fold it over and then put it into the envelope. That's evolutionary ecologist Dr Maurizio Rosetto, and he's got a dried specimen of Dendrocnide excelsa, the giant singing tree. Unlike other specimens kept at the herbarium, this one's covered in plastic and words of warning. Oh my God. This one, it still stings, even you know, when it's dried up. So how old, how old is that one? 2011. So that could still sting. Yeah. We don't need to just protect ourselves from singing trees. We need to protect them. And Maurizio's research is focused on the evolutionary ecology of native plant species in Australia, especially rainforest species like the singing trees. What we are, as a group are interested in particular is to understand why species are distributed and assembled the way they are. And, and to do that, we use uh, genetic tools, we use DNA, we use ecological information, so distribution information, information about the traits of species, and we use environmental information, so climate, soil, uh, geographic uh, patterns. And when we bring all of that together, we, we get a picture of, of current processes, but also a picture of historical processes. And, and by combining those two together, we, we understand the evolution of the species, and we're in a better position to try to predict uh, how species will respond to future change. Maurizio and his team are using the latest science to obtain and understand the story that is written in the DNA of plants in order to make more informed decisions about how to protect them. And that includes stinging trees like Dendrocnide excelsa. So at the time, we were particularly interested to see the differences in, in connectivity and gene flow between species that are easily dispersed and species that are less easily dispersed. And so this was part of that study. And this particular species showed exactly what we would expect. That there's a lot of connectivity across the landscape, so it can move really, really quickly and, and occupy available habitat when it needs to. So you're probably thinking a lot of connectivity around the landscape means a lot of stingers. 
But one thing we haven't quite addressed yet is the first aid treatment if you've run into one of these. Now, there's a few remedies out there, including one Maurizio discovered by pure chance. It was a couple of years back we were working on a project where we are sampling environmental DNA. And and because we were traversing uh, rainforest areas, uh, we, we sampled from uh, Wollongong all the way to Cape York. So we, we went to many, many, many sites and we got stung quite a few times. Now, the interesting thing is that in this eDNA technique, you need to extract DNA immediately. And so we had little field labs where we set up all our DNA extraction gear and extracted DNA every night. And to do that, you have to wear gloves, just latex, latex gloves. And so we realized that when you put a glove on a hand that has been stung, it starts to seep and seep and seep, and you see a bit of a wet patch on, on the side where you've been stung and it didn't feel too bad. And so we tested that and we kept the glove for 24 hours. And after keeping the glove for 24 hours, that's it, the pain was gone. The official first aid for a sting actually uses another item you might find at home. You can use the hair removal strips to get rid of the hairs. And that does help a lot of people within a short period of time. And I've heard of people who've had quite a large area of their, of their body stung use the hair removal strips and within, say, perhaps half an hour, an hour, actually felt okay. It's really difficult to say what is the right thing to do because different people will experience different pain and because different plants, I think, have different levels of toxicity with the toxin as well. So I just think if you do get stung, you just have to get to medical help as soon as possible. Despite being stung numerous times, Robert doesn't carry wax removal strips with him when he's doing field work in the rainforest. He uses something more natural. Kunji boy lily, which is uh, alocasia, and they grow in the same habitat. So it's a, it's a cutting a stem of that, getting a sort of a thick sap, and uh, and that actually allows you to rub that on and uh, and try to get rid of the uh, stinging hairs, the silica hairs, and uh, and it also has some alkaloids that seem to uh, to deaden the skin slightly. So we've got latex gloves, the kunji boy lily, and wax hair removal strips. The interesting thing, though, is that not everything works for everyone. So, above all, you've got to get medical help. But now, to flip the whole first aid topic on its head. What if a stinging plant actually becomes the medical treatment? All of my field expeditions have been to remote, under-collected locations in New Guinea. That's Dr Shelley James, and she's the collections manager at the National Herbarium of New South Wales. Going to locations that have never really been collected before, doing a broad diversity survey. So collecting absolutely everything and anything that's flowering or fruiting. Being out in the elements for days and sometimes weeks at a time, all in the name of science, sure comes with its risks. And Shelley unfortunately suffered a terrible injury a few years ago on a field trip in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, I had to cross a ditch. And so as I went down to cross the ditch, I slipped, put my hand out to stop my fall. There was a very loud crack. Yes, and I looked at my wrist and went, I've broken my arm. 
everyone sort of stopped and looked back because they must have heard it. Um, then I got across the ditch and I said, okay, I've got to sit down because I'm going to pass out here. And um, people just went running left, right and centre trying to find the first aid kit, which had apparently gone off down into the village. Yeah, not ideal when you're in the middle of the bush and medical help is three days away. But how did she live to tell the tale? The medicine lady of the village that was assisting us on the expedition, she was one of the carriers of all of our gear. So women and men from the local villages, we hired them to assist us in doing our field work, collecting as well as being porters up and down the mountainside. She had dreadlocks and, you know, she was typical Papua New Guinean, North Coast sort of features, very muscular. And there she is smoking her roll-your-own um, homegrown tobacco cigarettes, you know, puffing away. I've got a great picture of her sort of scowling at me. She came along and straightened my arm and then generated this poultice of, of Laportia. So Laportia is very common in New Guinea. Laportia is another species in the nettle family and just like the stingers in Australia, it has stinging hairs that release an irritating toxin. But the medicine lady ripped off some leaves and made a soft, wet mass of this stinging plant. So she created this poultice and put it on my, my wrist and bandaged up my wrist as a sort of a splint. And um, amazingly, the swelling just disappeared. And did you know what she was doing at this point with the plant? Or were you like, whatever, like, just help? Oh, just treat me because we're three days away from medical assistance, basically. I would have had to have been chopped out. Shelley says that initial poultice really burned, but because it kept the swelling down, she managed to keep collecting plants one-handed for a few days. Yeah, she's amazing. And then finally flew out of the bush and I went and got medical treatment and had an x-rays. And she'd actually got the bones almost straight. And as soon as the poultice came off, my, the swelling just went up astronomically. So it was amazing what this, this poultice did in terms of keeping the swelling down. But it eats like crazy two years afterwards. I mean, because all the little the little spicules get into your skin and bury in and, yeah, you just got to wait for, for them to work their way out. Now, guys, please do not get any ideas. This doesn't mean that if you break your arm, you should do the same with any of the stinging nettles found in Australia. But it's simply worth talking about just how important stinging plants are. Stinging trees, despite the fact that they have some negative connotations and, uh, and uh, the reality is that they're an important part of the forest and, uh, and they're an important part of our cultural heritage. So the, the two biggest um, of the New South Wales species, which is Dendrocnide excelsa, the giant stinging tree, and, and the uh, shining leaf stinging tree, Dendrocnide photinophila, they're both what you'd call pioneering type rainforest species. So after major disturbances, there are some of the species that will germinate and grow. And they make a very valuable contribution to the regenerative processes in the rainforest. They're not a favoured choice by, by people growing rainforest or restoring rainforest for obvious reasons. But in the natural forest, they have an important role to play. And similarly, their fruits, because they're an important food resource for our birds, for many, many 
species during the season. But it's not just a food source for birds and other animals. I've lived most of my life in the, in the forest and uh, everything that is edible I've, I've eaten. So I've got a bit of a taste for those acid fruits, the really acid fruits like crab apples and things. And they've got a real crab apple-y sort of taste. It's not just the experienced botanists such as Robert who dare to eat the fruits of stinging trees. Aboriginal people have eaten the fruits and also used the bark. The bark is quite fibrous and they would peel strips of the bark and then uh, divide the strands and create what you would loosely call ropes. So even though they sting us and other animals, stinging trees need to stay. And to complement Maurizio's work, other scientists at the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney are also trying to understand singing trees to protect their future. Fruiting season tends to be through sort of late autumn and then through to winter, and then they, they start to flower right at the beginning of summer. That's Dr Zoe Joy Newby, a rainforest conservation scientist at the Australian Plant Bank, where seeds and other plant material are stored for research and conservation purposes. She's got some seeds from the giant singing tree, Dendrocnide excelsa. Yeah, so they'd probably be about a millimetre. Um, they're certainly smaller than a mustard seed. Not as small as a poppy seed though, so somewhere, somewhere in between the two. And then they're actually quite flat as well. They don't have a lot to them. It's quite amazing that they're that small for a tree that can grow up to 40 metres high. So where did the tiny seeds from the giant singing tree come from? And more importantly, who was brave enough to collect them? A gentleman called Richard Johnson, who used to be our seed collector that retired a few years ago. So this was his 3,492nd collection. This collection was actually made in New South Wales on the central coast, uh, five kilometres from Kangaroo Valley. So it's actually come from the south coast. So this particular species, Excelsa, does actually extend quite a fair way south in, in New South Wales. But collecting and storing seeds in the seed bank is only part of the journey. Because seeds not only need to be able to withstand the drying and freezing processes required for storage, they also need to be able to germinate after that and every species is different. So it's important for us to make sure that those seeds are actually still viable in the collection, but also to ensure that any future collections we make of this species, we know that we can actually preserve in the freezer. Because if they're not going to survive, what's the point of even putting them in there? There isn't, so we're just, we'd be wasting our time. I want to check out the stinging seeds that are stored at Plant Bank for myself. So we're heading into the seed vault. But before we go in, we need to layer up. Okay, jacket's on. Yeah. All right, here we go. Holy moly, how cold is it again? Uh, so my, it's between minus 18 and minus 20. Yeah, it's Arctic. And while I'm shivering away, Zoe is looking for the seats. All right, so Dendrock. Dendrocnide excelsa, so 20140386. So the 2014 indicates that it was collected in 2014. So that's that guy there. And looking at the packet, it says MSB, which indicates that some of this collection was also sent to the Millennium Seed Bank. That's which good, because it means it's banked in at least two places. So if I just have a, a little look around, there is actually some Maroides in here. So some, some brave person has sifted through the fruit amongst all the, the hairs and has been able to get some seeds, which is really good. All right, it, it's time to get out of there so Zoe can explain how exactly she tests whether these seeds can survive in the seed vault and thrive afterwards. I only need 50 seeds to do 
uh, a freezer test. That's pretty much what we would usually use and I'll split them across 10 petri dishes. So that gives me five replicates with 10 seeds each. And then I'll check them probably once a week uh, at least initially and if they're taking a while to germinate then maybe once a fortnight and after a while when there's been no more germination then any seeds that are remaining I'll actually cut open and have a look inside and try to work out why they haven't germinated. So that might be because the seed was empty. It might be because it's been uh, insect predated. So there might be you know, little holes through the seed, little boreholes or something like that. So it was never going to germinate in the first place and we need to take all of those things into consideration when we actually quantify how much germination there has actually been in that collection. And Zoe says that some of the seeds from Dendrocnide excelsa have started to germinate. So what happens to the ones that make it? It depends on if we have a use for them. So we will usually pot the seedlings up at least for a little while, keep them just in a small tube stock, and then we'll send word out to either just the local nursery here or to some of the other gardens and say, hey, we've got these plants, would you like them? Given that it's a stinging nettle, I don't know that I'm going to find anyone that's willing to take them, but we would certainly try to ask around and see if we can find them a more permanent home. Well, the permanent home of stinging trees is in the rainforest. The stinging tree serves an important role in the generation of the rainforests. And so if a tree's fallen down and there's a gap in the canopy, then the stinging trees are always the first to grow in that gap. So if you have woodland species or, or pest species like lantana, which can destroy certain sections of rainforest, then you might argue that the stinging tree might be a good competitor to these pest species which will ultimately destroy the rainforest. Yes, every native plant, even the ones that hurt, have a vital role to play in the environment. And plants as a whole are the foundation for all life on Earth. The flora creates the structure and the habitat for the fauna to occupy. So the reality is that plants rule basically, and uh, you know they're they're foundational for all other life. They're the building blocks. They're the core elements of our own economy. And the plant economy, of course, rules the animal economy completely. So you know they are the basis of uh, of the whole of ecology. A huge thank you to all of our experts in today's episode because some of them had to share some very painful memories. So it goes without saying, please don't try and touch a stinging plant. You might end up like this guy that I found on YouTube. Oh my word, you saw that. I only just rubbed my finger over that leaf and oh, God, that feels like it's burning. <laughs> Now that is a nettle on steroids. Yeah, it's painful to watch. But if you do accidentally run into one, the best thing you can do is seek immediate medical help and get hold of some of those wax strips. Next episode, we're talking about tackling climate change and you'll hear from three different experts but equally passionate scientists who are trying to understand and mitigate the effects of climate change on flora and essentially us. So make sure you hit subscribe to get that episode delivered straight into your podcast app. And if you enjoyed today's show, please give Branch Out a five-star rating and a positive review. It helps more people find us. Mm -hmm.